And let's turn on our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they will happily get a Bible into your hands. We really like everyone to be able to hear the Word of God, but it's a double blessing when you can read and hear uh, as well. It goes into the eye gate, into the ear gate as well, and it has double the impact. And so, please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, make that Bible a gift from the Lord today as well. Hebrews chapter 12, v- verse 12. The Holy Spirit writes, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled." Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord for every opportunity that you give us to learn more about you. And Lord, the more that we learn about you, the more we come to love you and the more we come to appreciate you, and the more we come to rest in you, Lord. And we thank you that there's no better place to learn about you, your heart, your ways, than your holy word. And so we ask, Lord, that you would open up this passage to us today that we would hear your voice through it, that we would hear your heart through it as well. Speak to us as a congregation, Lord. Speak to us individually in the privacy of our heart. We know that these verses are in the Bible for a reason, and they're intended to accomplish something in our lives. And we have come that they might accomplish fully that, Lord, in our lives this morning. And so we ask for that. And the work and the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this room, now through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. These Hebrew Christians that the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to are in a backslidden state. And they are in danger of moving from a condition of being backslidden into uh, a condition of apostasy, which is uh, worse and far more dangerous. It's important to realize concerning these Christians that they had begun their Christian life with an absolutely full commitment to God, unqualified commitment to God. They were willing to endure any hardship, any loss, any difficulty that came with knowing him or that they would encounter by following him. But now they've slidden back from that, and that's what it is. A a person is in a backslidden condition. When I can look at my life today, my Christian life, my heart, and my relationship with God, and I can look back in my past and say, there was another time in which I was closer to him when I walked more obediently to him, when the relationship meant more to me than it does today. That's a backslidden condition. The book of Proverbs talks about the fa- speaks of the backslider in heart. It says the backslider in heart will be filled with all of his ways. All backsliding begins first in the heart, long before it ever becomes something where you can look at a person's outer life and say, oh, they're in a backslidden condition. And so they are backslidden in heart. They are contemplating doing things, abandoning Christ and their commitment to him that they would have never even considered when they were brand new 
Christians. And so they've slidden back now from that full commitment to Christ and full commitment to God's purposes for their lives. And now there are certain hardships and certain sacrifices that they were once willing to endure for him, but now they're no longer willing to endure those as, as, as a Christian. And we can find ourselves in the same place after we've walked with the Lord for a little while. We begin with such fervency toward the Lord. There isn't any sacrifice as a new Christian that we wouldn't, weren't willing to make. No rejection by any person, no matter how influential, that we weren't willing to endure in order to know him and to obey him and to walk with him. No step of faith that we weren't willing to take. And then after some time, sometimes that fire can begin to ebb. And then pretty soon we can begin to notice every self-sacrifice that obeying the Lord requires of us. We never noticed it before, but now we begin to notice it. And then soon after that, we can convince ourselves that those sacrifices are optional, that we can begin to obey or disobey God's word or his calling upon our lives and if, if we choose to, to do that. that that's, we have the freedom to uh, take it seriously or to disregard it and that there really aren't any consequences related to all of this and that this is an absolutely acceptable Christianity, that it is a perfectly acceptable behavior in a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. And that there's really nothing wrong with me removing God from the throne of my heart and my life and replacing, reinserting myself back into that position. Until now, we can find ourselves in a place where there are rejections of people and of institutions and of associations that I'm no longer willing to endure by publicly identifying with Christ. Their friendships and their praise and their opinions, they come to mean more to me than the friendship and the praise and the opinion of God himself. And if the truth be made known, all of my steps of faith are months old or years old or decades old for the simple reason that I have long ago ceased giving any serious consideration to any demand that God might make of me that would require even the slightest sacrifice or inconvenience or change in my life. And brick by brick and board by board, we can retake control of our lives and rebuild it in such a way that our lives are every bit as much out of his control and unavailable to him for his purposes as we were, as they were when we were unsaved. And it can occur so slowly over such a long period of time when every time obeying God's word would require some hardship or some self-sacrifice, I just choose to take the easiest path instead. And you know what's the craziest thing about it? Is that I can then actually convince myself that my capacity to do that is a mark of spiritual maturity. And to think, wow, I'm so glad that I got all of that out of my system when I was a new Christian and when I was a young Christian. I'm so glad that now I'm spiritually mature enough now to fashion a Christian life that can make everybody happy in my life, whether they know the Lord or not, whether they love the Lord or not. But the question is, is God happy with our Christianity? And maybe the Lord might speak to one or two of us here this morning. 
and say to us, don't you miss the sweaty palms of faith? Don't you miss the nervous stomach of a step of faith? Don't you miss the priceless feeling of making a stand for God and His truth, whatever the price to be paid for that in terms of man's praise or popularity and to do it for the sweet, beautiful communion that happens between you and God at those kind of times. Don't you miss partaking of the fellowship of Christ's suffering? Don't you miss the Christian service that forced you to grow spiritually every week and every day in order to survive? I remember reading a biography. It's out of print. It's almost impossible. It cost you a fortune to buy it now, even if you could find it. A biography on Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last century, English. And his daughter-in-law, Jill Campbell, wrote a biography on him. And he used to teach a Bible study on Friday nights. And it was kind of like a classroom, like a seminary that he would do. And she wrote of him, she said, the students had no idea that the teacher was but one step ahead of them. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's what Christian service does to us. It forces us to grow in a way that we would never choose to grow on our own. It's possible to have a safe soul but a wasted life. And if I take my life back from the Lord, I'm nothing but a thief. And I tell you, those are strong words. But these Hebrew Christians needed to hear it. And the man and the old man that is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love that lives inside of me. He needs that rebuke as well. As a new Christian, I remember reading of a missionary by the name of James Calvert. And he was leading a missionary team. He was heading it and to go out and evangelize cannibal Fiji at that time. The whole land dominated by cannibals and they were bringing the gospel of the message there. And as they were going over the side of the ship and the boats to then go to the island, the captain of the ship tried to dissuade him and all of them of going there. And he said, you'll risk your life on all those with you if you go among such savages. And Calvert magnificently replied, he said, we died before we ever came here. That's Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's the solution to a backslidden condition? The solution is a recommitment of my life to God and to his purposes and plans for my life. I think about in the whole area of recommitment, there's a famous passage in the Old Testament that I'm always reminded of related to that term recommitment. And it surrounds a man by the name of Jacob, Genesis chapter 35. And Jacob in Genesis chapter 35 was not the man <clears throat> that he was earlier in Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis chapter 35, here is Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of uh, Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fame. And at this time in his life, he's completely lost control of his family. Everything is a mess. Everywhere he wants to look around his life, 
Everything is collapsed. It's falling apart before his own eyes. His family is being destroyed. And his family is the family, the bloodline that God had chosen to bring the coming Messiah into the world. It was very significant that he had allowed things to get into the place that they had become. His daughter Dinah had been raped, the city of Shechem. Two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, in retribution against it, set up a plan by which they had the Shechemites had them uh, circumcised, and then when they were in that vulnerable condition, went in and slaughtered every male in the city. Dinah wasn't raped by every man in the city. They weren't guilty of it. One man was guilty of that. And they go in and in cold-blooded murder of the bloodline of Abraham where God said, I will make you a blessing to all nations. And they are killing people in cold blood. And the rest of the brothers became just thieves. They came in on top of the dead bodies and began to steal everything that the people owned. And idolatry had been introduced into the family. And Jacob isn't leading his family and his home anymore. And his children are in rebellion to his authority. And God's reputation is being spoiled. And he desperately needs to hear from God again, and he knows it. And so what does he do? He sought God in prayer, and God told him to do something very interesting. God said, go back to Bethel. Go back to Bethel. That's a wonderful phrase to have be in our minds when we realize what the phrase means. Go back to Bethel. Bethel was the place that Jacob first had an encounter with God 30 years earlier in his life when he was fleeing his brother Esau because of the whole issue of the birthright. And his mother, Rebekah, realizing that this is going to become a problem and Esau is probably going to kill Jacob, sends him off to go to be with his with her family in another city. And as he's fleeing for his life, all he has is the clothes on his back and the staff that he's carrying. And he comes to a place and he is so tired and is fleeing, he lays his head down at night, can't find anything comfortable to put his head on. He puts his head on a rock and as he falls asleep there, you got to be tired to use a rock for a pillow. And he falls asleep and he sees this great ladder that is, uh, uh, that is stretching forth from the earth all the way into heaven. And he sees angels ascending and descending the, the ladder. And he becomes, comes into contact with God and the realization of God's activity and his work in the world. And he commits his life to God in that particular place, in a way that he had never done before. When all he had was just his simple little old self and the clothes on his back and the staff in his hand. He committed his life to the Lord there in chapter 28. But by chapter 35, everything is a mess. And so God is just calling him to come back to where he first met God. God, where he first committed his life to God, back to when things were simple and when things were clear in his relationship with God. Now he's got a family. Now he's got flocks. Now he's got money. Now he's got prosperity. But he's drifted away from an obedient relationship with the Lord, and he is going to lose everything that he has compromised in order to gain. The Lord was speaking to him, come back to being close, as close to me as you were at the beginning. Come back to the place where you heard my voice last. Come back to the place where I was all you had and I was all that you needed. 
Come back to the place when our relationship was what you want it to be now and you need it to be now. And Jacob went back to Bethel with his family. And in that place, he took all of the idols that had been attached to his family, that they had begun to worship on their own, all of these things that the world worships, but no child of God is to worship, these things that had entered into their life, and he buried all of those idols under the terebinth tree. He cleaned house. And by burying them under that terebinth tree to bury something, it communicates death. He was saying... We are dead to this. This is over. We're beginning a new chapter. And, and so he did begin that new chapter with the Lord. Perhaps a number of us this morning need to hear that the relationship that you once had with God and now desperately need again, it's right where you left it. Just go back there and you'll find it right where you left it. Jesus wrote in one of his seven letters to the seven churches, he wrote to the first church, the church of Ephesus. And he said to them, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. When you lose something, you don't know where to go back to find it. But when you leave something, you know where you left it. And you know why you left it. And this church that he is writing to in Ephesus, he went on to say, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. They're in a backslidden state. And then he said, Repent and do the first works. Or else I come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And he just told him three simple things. Remember when our relationship was what you wish it was today. And then repent. Have a change of mind about the direction that you're going in. And then go back and do your first works. Go back to Bethel. Go back to doing all of the things that you did when this relationship was going great. All of the things that have attached to your life now that were not a part of your life when our relationship was right, jettison it. Get rid of it. Turn your priorities upside down. Reprioritize your life. Everything that it was, in terms of the priorities of your life, everything that those priorities were at that time and no longer return to those priorities. Return to that life. And the Lord said, when we do that, we'll find the relationship that we'll find that relationship with God right where we left it. And when we find ourselves in a place where our commitment to God and His purposes for our lives is no longer what it once was, then we need to recommit our lives to Him and to reestablish His Lordship in our lives. And the phrase that I like to use and is the most meaningful to me, is to settle the issue of His Lordship in my life. That's what needs to happen. For some Christians, they begin with that. Lordship is absolutely established. And then they move back from it. And they realize, I've moved from that place. And then there are other Christians who have never, ever settled His Lordship. They never even had that initial season of obedience to the Lord or service to the Lord. The relationship never became what God wanted it to become, and so they hardly notice the loss. It has no impact upon them. And that person needs to step back and to realize, yes, I put my faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, but I've never allowed him to be the Lord of my life. I've never allowed him to search my life or to search my home room by room. I've never allowed him to make my decisions. I've never... I, I came to know him 
And in coming to know him, I've never allowed him to make a single change in my life. That's a person that needs to settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life. And the writer is calling these Christians to a total and complete recommitment of their lives to God and to his purposes for their lives there in verses 12 and 13. And he uses that athletic imagery. He continues uh, that imagery. And by the Holy Spirit, he speaks to these Hebrew Christians in the same way that a coach would speak to members of a team who are kind of discouraged by their circumstances or, or thinking about quitting their race. And you notice again there in verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands that hang down. Anybody that's been involved in athletics, you recognize it. I mean, you just read here verses 12 and 13, the description of the athlete. Here you have an athlete where his hands are hanging down. He's got feeble knees. He says, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight for your feet, paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. You've got the description of an athlete who is completely discouraged, has lost completely lost hope and heart in the middle of what he's in the middle of. And God is saying that that is what they were feeling like spiritually. That was their spiritual condition. He describes their hands as hanging down, literally that their arms were listless or useless. And he tells them to strengthen their arms, to strengthen their hands. In other words, literally he tells them, start using them again. Excuse me. Their knees are feeble. In other words, they're weak. And he tells them to strengthen their knees. In other words, start using them again. He told them to make straight paths for your feet. In other words, get back on the path that God has called you to, the path that you've taken yourself off of. And they were to get back into that race of faith and they were to make a fresh commitment to finishing the race. And if they did so... The Holy Spirit declared in verse 13 that healing would follow. If they would commit to finishing their race, commit to being faithful in their personal relationship with God, faithful to what God had called them to do and to be in Christian service, that if they would do that, then they would discover that God would give them the power to do that. And God's callings are always His enablings, Always his enablings. So give me a verse for it. I'll be happy to. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And the writer is telling them that that old strength and that old energy and that old vigor and that old joy that they once had in following Christ, that it would return, that what is lame would not become dislocated. We would say that their twisted ankle wouldn't turn into a dislocated ankle. They were in a bad condition, but there was a worse condition than they were in. And God said, if you turn from the condition that you're in now, you won't go from bad to worse, which is where you're headed. But healing will come into your life because God is a God who loves to restore and he's just simply saying, be, be strong and go straight. That's what he's telling them. That might be a word for someone today. Be strong and go straight. <laughs> Whatever the price might be, or the price might be paid in order to do that. Stay faithful to God and healing will follow. And it's a wonderful promise and it's a wonderful encouragement. Jeremiah speaks of the same thing. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, Return you backsliding children, God said, and I will heal your backsliding. And he loves to do it. Now, what in the world will a recommitment to Christ look like for them? It It looks like something a little bit different for all of us. But what will it look like for them? And he tells us there, first of all, in verse 14, He told them that they were to pursue peace with all people. He's talking mainly about other Christians. 
And what the writer is saying to these Christians is, you know, there's enough persecution and enough rejection and enough slandering being directed against us by a world that's hostile to our faith without us adding to it by persecuting and rejecting and slandering one another. We are to pursue, he tells us, peace. A.T. Robertson, who's an expert on the Greek, he translates that word pursue. He says it means to chase peace as if in a hunt. In other words, we are not to be passive as Christians in the pursuit of peace or being active as an influence for peace among God's people. All of us should have a soft heart for our fellow Christians because we know what it is to swim against the tide, against the flow and the direction of the world that pulls people away from God. Especially in this hour in our nation where we realize that that tide, that pull is stronger than ever. It's, it's a, it takes more than ever to swim against the strength of the tide that we're experiencing today. That's why the relationship you had with God last year, it won't work today. The relationship that you had with God last week, that won't work today. You won't make it. You won't make it today with that relationship. That's why the Bible tells us that not only are we not to backslide, we're never to determine we're going to stop here and we're mature enough and we'll settle for this Christianity. We must always be growing in that relationship because the obstacles that we face as Christians in this world are always becoming stronger. And so we look at our fellow Christians. They don't need my aggravation. They don't need me bringing anxiousness and slander against them. Not a single one of them. They got enough on their hands. They got enough that they're facing in obeying God in their own relationship with the Lord and being faithful to His call upon their life. They don't need the added thing of me fighting against them. Each of us are to be an influence for peace in any relationship that we have in the body of Christ. And that's always true but especially during times of persecution. As Christians, we need a peaceful and edifying fellowship with other Christians. And then in terms of the world around us, what does this look like, this pursuing peace with all people? All people, that's Christians and more. There must be non-Christians too. It means that the causing of a fight or strife should never begin with a Christian. We should never be the source of that kind of fight or that kind of of war. We are to be known in the world as a peace-pursuing, a peace-seeking people. That's to be our reputation. It might be good for us to just ask ourselves individually as a Christian, am I a peace-seeking people in the body among God's people and in the world? Or am I known as being a division person, a slander, this kind of nonsense that we can be drawn into? Jesus said that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And people will recognize that we're kind of a chip off the old block when they recognize that we are a peace-seeking people. The world is getting darker around us. And there's no denying that. But it doesn't paralyze us. 
It fills us with a realization that if we will just simply become, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the people, the unique people that God wants us to be in this world, that our lives are going to stand out as different and powerfully different in a way that they never have before in the history of our nation. And so there's the power of that where a person looks and says, why does that person, every time they're pulled into a situation and somebody's being torn down or somebody's slandering another person or somebody's saying something destructive, why does that person never engage in that? Why do they walk away from those conversations? Why do they say something that brings peace to a situation? What makes them different? And what produces a person like that in a world that is fashioning a completely different kind of person? And then people come to realize, ah, there's the reason. It's because they follow Christ, because they follow Jesus. Now, seeking peace with all people doesn't mean that we're always going to be successful because we can't control, always control what other people will do. And I like what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so there are sometimes you can be as peaceable as you want in a situation and the other person is not going to be at peace with you. And we accept that. But we accept it realizing we've made every effort in the situation for this to be reconciled and to be resolved and for this relationship to be a peaceful one. Again, the causing of strife is never to begin with a Christian. And then he tells them and us that we're to pursue holiness without which no one will see God. So he tells us that we're to pursue peace, but right on the heels of that he tells us that we're to pursue holiness. Why would he couple those two things Together, I think one of the reasons is is that in seeking peace it, in, with a world that can be very, very hostile to our faith, we do not seek peace at any price. We do not seek peace or bring peace to a situation by compromising our biblical convictions or compromising the Word of God, or compromising God's call upon our lives. That's where the line is drawn. We must never compromise our holiness in order to accomplish peace in a situation. That's going beyond what God wants us to do, because that would be sin. And the writer tells us that sin obscures our vision of God and the intimacy of our relationship with him. As he tells us there, that without holiness, without without which no one will see the Lord. It's a holy life that sees the Lord. It's a holy life that God reveals himself to. And then third, notice in verse 15 that we're to take account of our decisions and how those decisions affect other people and especially Christians. This exhortation that he gives, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. That exhortation is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, where the Old Testament apostates who were abandoning the worship of the true and the living God in order to follow the idols of the world in their day, they were likened to a poisonous root or a poisonous plant that then poisons other people. And so the writer here is declaring that Christians who abandon salvation based upon faith for a salvation that's based upon works, which is no salvation at all, who abandon their faith in Christ for any reason, he says, they are a poisonous influence in the body of Christ. 
And the point being that these Hebrew Christians really needed to stop and think about the effect that their apostasy or their backsliding would have on other Christians. And the writer is telling them that it will have an effect on others and that effect will be bitter, it will be poisonous. And in the Deuteronomy passage, God reminds people of how he reminds his own people of how the actions of one person can broadly influence a lot of people for bad. And it's really important to internalize that truth this morning as a Christian, to realize that whether I live faithfully for the Lord or whether I apostatize or backslide, it will affect other Christians. And when we remain faithful to the Lord and His calling upon our lives, it affects the body of Christ positively. It builds up the body of Christ. Those of you, so many of you in this room, committed to your relationship with the Lord and committed to being faithful to God's service upon that he, in His call upon your lives. Thank you for that. I'm a beneficiary of that every single day. The body of Christ in Modesto is a beneficiary of that. What you do, your place of faithfulness, what if nobody took that place? What would be the influence of Christ in our community or in the world? It would disappear. The influence comes out of those individual relationships with God and those individual commitments. I am benefited. You are benefited by the woman in Bulgaria who knows the Lord and loves the Lord and serves the Lord faithfully in that place, and the one in Argentina, and the one in Russia, and the one in England, and the one in Canada, and the one in Mexico. It's all an influence for good. And we hear about what God is doing in the different parts of the world and that is happening through His people. And it blesses us and it encourages us. And then on the other end of the spectrum, though, backsliding and apostasy produces a poisonous and a contaminating influence into the body of Christ and into the hearts and the minds of other Christians. And they don't need it, the writer is saying. On top of all of the other things that Christians are facing in this world, on top of all of the other obstacles that they are facing in living faithfully to the Lord, they don't need that poison to be entered into their heart and their mind. Guess who just left the Lord? Guess who just backslid? Guess who just claims that they don't want anything to do with the Lord the rest of their life? And when that hits your heart as a Christian, you realize it has an influence, and it's a poisonous influence. And he tells them and he tells us that we should have a concern about that and we should have a concern to help everyone finish the race that God has called them to. And one of the ways that we have of doing that is being faithful to our race. You have no idea who you encourage through your walk with Christ. You'll know one day at the Bema Seat of Christ because He keeps track of it. But you have no idea. God does. And that's why he tells us in his word to be this kind of an influence within the body of Christ. And then finally in verses 16 and 17, he tells them and us that we're to stop and think about how their decision or our decision to walk away from the Lord would ultimately affect us. He's told us how it will affect other people, but how will it affect us? And he tells them essentially 
that it would become a decision that they would live to deeply regret, whether in this life or in the life to come. And he makes the point through an Old Testament figure by the name of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. And Esau was, uh, we're told here in the passage, the point that's being made, he sold his birthright for a morsel of food, for a, a bowl of red, some kind of stew. And that later he regretted his decision, but then it was too late to undo the damages and the consequences of the decision. He was the oldest son of Isaac and Rebekah. And because he was the oldest son, he had the privilege of the birthright. And the birthright in those days consisted of two things. If you were the oldest son, you got the birthright, which meant you received twice as much as an inheritance of all of the other children. That was part of the birthright. It was a blessing of double inheritance. But the birthright also had a responsibility attached to it. That is, the head of the family following the death of the patriarch or of the father, that you now had the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the family, that you would become a leader and a, and a, a, a director and a nourisher of their spiritual life. And that was a responsibility that you took to yourself And the real treasure in life that the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying is not to end up with twice as much stuff as everybody else. The most valuable thing in life is to use my life as a spiritual blessing and influence upon my family and in in the world. And Esau is a funny guy. He's just a normal kind of guy. He's just the guy next door in a lot of ways. He wasn't like overtly evil. He wasn't you know, living a life of debauchery. He just didn't care about the things of God. What his body told him to do, he did. And if that meant that he wasn't going to live up to what God had planned for his life, then he was okay with that. So he comes out of the field one day, and he he was a great hunter. He hadn't caught any food. Jacob has been making food in the kitchen, so to speak, of the household, his younger brother. And he says, give me food, I'm going to die. And Jacob said, I'll give you a bowl of stew here if you give me the birthright. What good is a birthright? I'm about to die. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of chili. All kitchen and no chapel. That's Esau. No appreciation for spiritual things. But Jacob, for all of his problems, and he had a lot of problems, he wanted the birthright. And he didn't care about double the blessings at the time of the death of his father. He cared about being a spiritual influence in his family. And so Esau took and he gave all of that Away, And then later on, when Isaac then pronounced the blessing upon the brothers, he gave the birthright to Jacob. And when Esau then found out about it, he began to cry and he began to ask his father, don't you have another blessing? Don't you have another blessing for me? And his father said, the birthright's been given to you to your brother, but I do have a blessing. And he pronounced the blessing upon him, a lesser blessing. And when it talks here in the passage about Esau crying and repenting, what is it careful to tell us that he was crying and repenting and longing for? The blessing, not the birthright. He wanted the double inheritance. He didn't care about the spiritual side of having an opportunity to rise up in the history of God's people and to be an influence for God over that family and over that flock. He didn't care one bit about that. And these Hebrew believers were very near to making the same choice that Esau made. After running that race for a while, 
they're beginning to put greater value on the blessings, the physical things of life rather than on the birthright, the influence for God. They're thinking about quitting their race based upon blessings rather than upon the birthright. And what they're forgetting is that the birthright is the blessing. One day money will mean nothing to you. The size of the house will mean nothing to me. How many shoes are in the closet? How many coats? How many this? How many? It will mean nothing to me. You say, when will that happen? I don't know how soon it will happen. It can happen sooner than our deathbed, though, but it happens on a deathbed. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is wanting them to know long before their deathbed that the birthright is the blessing. That one day we will look back on our life and we will not long for more materially what we will look back on and we will long for and we will prize is the opportunity that God gave us to be an influence for Him in human history. In our moment in human history. That's the blessing of life. And they're about to throw it away because it's costing them something in a material way to stay faithful to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to them through His Word and lets them know, I know what you're thinking, but you will live to deeply regret this if you make that decision, whether in this life or in the life to come. And so to the man or the woman who is considering abandoning Christ, whether in backsliding or in apostasy, the writer has simple words to us. Number one, repent, be strong, And go straight. Get back in that race. Pursue peace with all men. But not at the sacrifice of holiness. Pursue holiness. Think about how your decision will affect others, especially other Christians. And then to tell them you're about to make a decision that is dumber and more catastrophic than Esau's decision. Don't do it. Because it leads to a life of regret. And so here's where the rubber meets the road in the book of Hebrews. Chapters 1 through 10, he's told them over and over and over again why Jesus is better than everything. And then in chapters 11 and 12, he calls upon them and us to come under the encouraging influence of Christians that have run successfully and faithfully before us to lay aside all of the sins and the weights that would easily encumber us, to run our race with endurance, not to fall prey to self-pity, and then to allow God to discipline us in order to produce within us the godly character that He knows we're going to need. And then now He speaks to them and tells them now they need to do something more than just listen. Now here is the moment in time in the book where he calls them to repentance. It isn't like he says, listen, I have written 12 and a half chapters to you, not so you can be well informed in the decision that you're making, I've written twelve and a half chapters to bring you to this place that you would now, as an act of your will, repent of the thought that you're having to leave Christ on any level and to recommit your life completely to Him. And that's what He's calling on them to do. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing through the book of Hebrews today 
in each of our lives. I don't believe in beating up people, at least not anymore. I don't believe in putting people in headlocks and forcing or humiliating or making a public stand or any of these things. I know that when God deals with sin in my heart, that He deals with it as privately as He possibly can and only goes beyond that when I force Him to. So I'm not here to wail on anyone or to beat anybody up. And the Lord isn't either. But just to take a very strong passage from His Word, a passage that is necessarily strong, and to allow it to examine our own hearts and our own relationship with the Lord And is there a need for recommitment to occur? If you can look back on any time in your Christian life where your relationship with Him was closer and deeper and more obedient than it is now, you are backslidden. You have the out-and-out backsliders that's just like the sex, drug, and rock and roll backsliders. Then you have the polite backslider. The self-controlled backslider. But it's still backsliding. And the importance of allowing the passage to just speak to us and allowing the passage to pull us out of that state. The only Christianity that is going to endure in the hour that God has called us to live for Him and speak for Him is the Christianity that is described in this book and not the Christianity that is so often worshipped in America and around the world. We have to throw everything else off, come back to our Bibles and say, God, redefine Christianity for me and redefine my Christian life for what it's supposed to be and not what I've heard or seen or even lived. I want it to look like what you describe in this book. And so the Lord calls us to that. And I would just encourage you today, if the message speaks to any of us here in terms of a recommitment being needed, again, I don't call people up front. I don't have people stand for that. It's a private matter. But there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service who'd love to pray with you if you want to pray with someone and recommitting your life. Or maybe you say, no, I just need to take a good long walk and use this afternoon for that. Don't wait a month. Don't wait a week. Do it today. And leave here. Put a sandwich in your back pocket and go take a walk until the issue is settled between you and the Lord today. And you have the relationship with God that God has for you and you're engaged in the calling and purpose for your life that He has called you to. The birthright is everything. The opportunity to be influential for the kingdom of God is all that matters in this life. Let's commit to it. And as necessary, let's recommit to it this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Lord, your word says faithful are the wounds of a friend. And we thank you that you always love us enough to tell us the truth from your word. Lord, I pray for my heart and we pray for one another's lives and hearts. And we pray, Lord, that wherever a recommitment is needed in any life, that your voice would just be clear to that person's heart and that that recommitment would be accomplished today and that the healing that immediately follows it will become a part, Lord, of each and every life that does so. Thank you, Lord, for the Christian life that is described in this book. That's the one we want. And we pray, Lord, that you would use today and the coming days and weeks and months and years, if you should tarry, to develop and to nurture that relationship in each one of us so that we can experience the glory of all that has been purchased for us and the precious blood of Christ upon that cross. And we ask these things of you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.